from the NPC Studios located in the fantastic Green Hill Zone, it's time for the Weekly News Roundup for the week of February 17th, 2023. My name is Travis Sherman, and here's what we'll be talking about that's making headlines in the video game world. Original Metroid Prime devs are pissed at Nintendo for omitting them in the credits of Remastered. Player count for WB's Smash Clone Multiverse has plummeted. The Tetris movie trailer drops, and I don't know what I was expecting. And of course, PlayStation VR 2 reviews are out, and it's a mixed bag. Again, my name is Travis Sherman, and as always, for the Weekly News Roundup, I am joined by Kyle Inman. Kyle, what's up? What's up? Not a lot here. (laughs) Yeah, especially for you. I'm not going to get into what's been going on with me, but yeah, it's been a lot. (laughs) Right? Yeah, so here we are into our first ever weekly news roundup dedicated podcast instead of doing this live. So enjoy that clear quality audio that's not ripped from a video, folks. Well, excluding the fact that I just like whacked my desk real good. I don't know if that'll come out in the in the post, but <laughs> it'll it'll be the loudest part of your waveform there possible. So Right. Keep an eye on that part. But anyway, let's hop into the first news story we actually have here on the list, and that is, yes, the original Metroid Prime devs are pissed at Nintendo for omitting them in the credits of Remastered. So, last week, during the Nintendo Direct, Nintendo went ahead and announced Metroid Prime Remastered for the Switch. And it released immediately then and thereafter, and everybody's been throwing rave reviews about this coming out again. It was one of those games that really set the standard for what could be on the GameCube, especially as it relates to a first-person shooter, much less Metroid being changed from a side-scrolling game to being an actual first-person shooter with, of course, still carrying around its puzzle elements and such. Um But even in the grand scheme of all of those reviews, we ended up learning that at the end of the game, as it's scrolling through credits, the original developers of Metroid Prime and even Metroid Prime 2, mostly those who actually worked on Metroid Prime, uh, were not actually listed in the credits of Metroid Prime Remastered. The only thing at the end of the game that comes up says based on the work of Metroid Prime original Nintendo GameCube and Wii version development staff. So this was uh, made note of on Twitter by Zoid Kirsch, who is a senior gameplay engineer on Metroid Prime and Metroid Prime 2 for the GameCube. Uh, He went ahead and said, while many studios did amazing work on the remaster, I'm let down Metroid Prime's remaster does not include the full original game credits. I worked with so many amazing people on the game, and everyone's name should be included in the remaster, not just a single card like this. Uh, According to the article that we're referencing here from VideoGamesChronicle.com, it looks like there was an additional tweet out there from Jack Matthews, who was a technical lead engineer on Metroid Prime 1 and 2, and then a principal engineer on Metroid Prime 3. He goes on to say, this is a travesty, not just for my credit, even though most of my code was probably replaced, but for people whose code and work are largely unchanged, like Mark H.H., Steve McCrea, all of the up-resed art and concepts, the game design, shameful. So, Kyle, we are living kind of in a world where games are getting remastered at, I don't want to say like a breakneck pace. They, We see remastered games, at least like a very popular one's several times a year. Um, of course, we only just a couple weeks ago had the Dead Space remake come out or the the remastered version. I I don't want to get into the argument of what a remake or a remaster really comes down to again. But you know what I'm getting at, though, is that we've seen a lot of this stuff come out. We've seen a lot of the praise that goes with these things. But sometimes some of these things end up falling through where there isn't enough credit out there for these original devs who worked on what they had originally worked on. Like, is this justified aggression? Is this just, is this justified response to not being made mention of in their original work? Is this, is this potentially good enough? I don't know. I'm not a game developer, of course. So, I mean, I guess I'd be annoyed by it, but I don't know where I would fully sit in this one. Um, I I feel like, it is kind of shameful regardless um if you think about it i i feel like the original um people that worked on the project should still be listed i mean there there were assets uh, albeit they were up and whatnot so 
not necessarily the original assets any longer, uh, but they had to use the original game as a complete reference. It's basically one for one uh, to the, the GameCube and the Wii version. So I, I think it's, I, I don't know, almost like subversive to to to, to not list the uh, original people that worked on the project um, in the game and just do it as a as a title card or as an afterthought. Um, it, that that's just kind of horrible, um, especially because I you think about it, none none of these people would have had the opportunity to actually work on this project uh, without the the original creators actually putting their time, blood, sweat, and tears, and whatnot into it. Granted, I know that the people that have worked on it now have, have put a lot of time into it as well. I mean, it's been in works for, you know, how long now? We've, we've been hearing rumors of Metroid Prime 4 since the, the launch of the Switch. Um, so I'm sure it's been at least since then that, that it's been work, being, being worked on as a remaster. So, yeah, I... I, I, I think it's kind of a travesty, honestly, that they, they didn't list the uh, original creators. I wonder, though, really how far a remaster actually goes with this, like in the sense of like the game wasn't like Dead Space, where it's like uh, more so a one for one remake built on a new engine, built with new technology that, of course, didn't exist when Dead Space was out, you know. With Metroid Prime being a remaster, was it just them being able to get the source files and source code from Nintendo for the GameCube or even the Wii version, and then just remapping new textures and then getting it to work with the new technology? I mean, I guess if it's a full-on from the ground up like rebuild, like a, it, you know, then obviously maybe there isn't credit that's that's due across the board but if it is just the remaster part itself where they just slapped some new textures on and made sure that it worked with the uh that it worked with the switch then i would definitely be in that same boat as you that there definitely needs to be credit there because all you did was just make things look cleaner yeah but i mean even still beyond that um how how hard would it have been to try and cram um even even in just a condensed form, the original credits into the game. I mean, it's it's credits, if nothing else. Uh, most children actually skip through the credits unless there's like a scene at the end. Um, but beyond that, like I said, it, it goes down to the original project. If the if the original Metroid Prime wouldn't have had the success that it initially had on the GameCube to to be reproduced for the Wii. Um, I don't think they would have had the opportunity to even work on this project. So by by not listing them, it I don't know that that's that's kind of skeevy in my opinion. Well, I guess the bigger part of it, farther down in the article here from Video Games Chronicle, they talk about more in regards to the credits, not necessarily being that they need to be viewed by say just your average player. But it's more so recognition and reference for like their portfolios because you can go and say anything like I worked on Grand Theft Auto V. No, I didn't actually work on Grand Theft Auto V because I have nothing to back me up. But those who are in the credits obviously can go in and show. It's like, yeah, if you scroll through the credits, I'm under the technical team for this part of it. My name should be right there. you know. And sure enough, it's something that can be part of their portfolio for the work that they've done. And so the article talks about that. They... VGC talked with somebody back, they said, in 2019. Uh, her name was uh, Catherine Neal, and she worked on Test Drive and Alone in the Dark and said that regulation of game credits was long overdue. So they go on to say, some gamers don't realize how important this issue is for us uh, professionally. Many seem to think it's about bruised egos or something. No, like film and TV, it's about getting hired for the next job and not looking like a liar on your CV. There are still no industry standards that developers can count on their employees adhering to. And I think the fact that many people still don't even know that those IGDA, and that stands for International Game Developer Association uh, crediting standards, exist, uh, says something. So there appears to be some type of, I guess, guidelines out there, not necessarily ones that are enforced in the sense like there's some sort of regulatory regulatory commission, excuse me, that says you need to follow these. It seems more like it's just a framework that is a a best practices. Um, 
and their guidelines say that anybody who worked on a game's development for 30 days or 5% must be credited. So if they were already credited potentially in the original game as is, but their work didn't necessarily lead to the remaster part itself in the sense that they were called back to duty to work on the same thing they had already done, does it really fall into that same category then? Do they, Mm -hmm. you know... I, I believe credit should be where, you know, credit's due. I'm just wondering, though, is that if if you worked on some sort of, like, let's say you worked on the wireframing for Samus. Like, you were responsible for building out the wireframing and uh, the wireframing for all of the monsters and such. Um, that you built that back in the GameCube days. And since then, it's been on your resume that you were there, you were responsible for the wireframe technology in that game and probably several others. But then you were in... uh, But then the game it re-released for the Wii, and your name may have also been there too because they just ported it over. And then the remaster version comes out, but you didn't have to do anything else in that regard, like to actually rebuild it to make it work for it. Well, I'm actually kind of answering my own question there, is that in reality, yeah, I guess the credits should have been there then. Yeah, kind of answered my own now question. You're, you're kind of making me look at it at a different standard too. Um, if you think about it, um, when they worked on the project, they were credited for it, but however, it's still technically licensed by Nintendo. As long as it wasn't an asset that was, I guess, used in the game, would they necessarily have to be credited other than just the title screen or the title card? saying you know in the credits saying that it was based on that work it i don't know it 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 seems to get more muddled at that point when you think about it i like the fact though that we just kind of flipped on yeah that like at the end of the day i guess the easiest thing to say is we're not sure what the best approach is for this because we just flipped yeah Um, and maybe you know there there needs to be more um I, I don't know more, more oversight on on the IGDA and, and their crediting standards, and you know maybe it needs to be looked into on on how things are credited and you know what kind of limitations their 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 standards lie in. Um, I mean, obviously they they do have some loose standards, but where does the line get drawn? Um, what what if you know they did use an asset from the original game? At that point, does it belong to Nintendo, or does the original creator need to be credited because um, they did originally work work on it, and it's the same asset? So it it does become more and more muddled the the more and more you look into it. So I think maybe it is something that the uh, game industry as a whole needs to kind of address, and and just so so these creators, these coders, these artists can all get the proper credit that they're due. Yeah, I think a lot of it even comes down to the talk of more unionization in the gaming industry. As we're seeing the efforts being made for unionizing in uh, the QA environment, for example, that seems to be a really big one. Uh, The idea, though, that if there could be unionization for all the different facets of the gaming world, just as there is for the, for movies and television, um, that there could potentially be that potential or that could be that reform to make Mm -hmm. this happen. That it's like anytime you remake or, or not even remake, if you're remaking a game and you're doing it from the ground up, that's different. But if you're remastering a title where the only difference is a company is just being paid to redo the textures is being paid to make sure that it works on the switch or, or console, excuse me, that the credit is where it's due to them, but you're building on top of what's already there. You know, if dead space was just a fresh coat of paint, I would expect the same thing that there should be credits there because that's what it is. But dead space is a, is just a one for one remake built from the ground up with a new engine instead of just slapping a fresh coat of paint. So I'm definitely for them having needing, like, I'm kind of glad I flipped around on this, that I think they need to be credited, but I don't see any easy way for them to be credited right now, given the 
current environment. Like, unless Nintendo goes back and literally drops an update that adds them in, I don't know what can be done to fix this right now, or even for any other future titles, other than more regulation, unionization, and such, you know, making sure credit can be given where it needs to be. Yeah, I... Like I said, I, I think what it comes down to, uh, aside from the unionization and whatnot, um, is there there needs to be more insight into the committee that actually decides the, the credits on games. Um they there maybe their their processes or their their um I guess regulations and stipulations on on what gets you credited in a game is too loose and maybe that just needs to be addressed as well. Maybe. Hmm. That's a tough one. <laughs> it is. No, no joke, man. It really is. Kind of makes you wonder um if the original team was credited in the uh Dead Space remake even though that um technically I don't I don't think anyone from the team uh, worked on that one at all i think yeah i think the only involvement as far as i'm aware has been i believe <laughs> music so the actual soundtrack was done by the same person and then the uh the a couple of the voice actors came back right, right. but i as far as i'm aware that's it but because of how much stuff has changed hands how much stuff has evolved since the original dead space came out and now the remakes out um yeah, I don't know exactly. So I guess we'll look to see if there's any official uh, release from Nintendo talking about this further or uh, release from the company, whoever it was that was responsible for doing the remaster of Metroid Prime. So once we get that news, of course, we'll share it out uh, when we see it. But let's go ahead and move on to the next story in our list, and that is about multiverses. Uh, player counts plummet from Warner Brothers Smash Like Multiverses based on current reports out of Steam DB. So, Multiverses, of course, is the Smash Brothers competitor that specifically exists in the Warner Brothers universe. So, you're going to have the likes of Batman versus Shaggy versus uh, uh, Arya Stark versus LeBron James versus Bugs Bunny. Ver I mean, it just it goes on. Apparently, they're getting yeah. ready to add. Pickle Rick here soon, too, from Rick and Morty. Oh, uh, I, I know. But needless to say, just I'm kind of putting it out there anyway. Just, just a small list for people to understand in case they forgot about this game. Because in case you forgot, now is your chance maybe to go and check this out. Because according to SteamDB, which, by the way, SteamDB only looks at PC where the game is actively being played and is linked to a Steam account. Uh, currently shows that the game has lost 99% of its player base just after six months since it launched. So that would have been in August of this last year. Uh, so the game, of course, launched as a free-to-play title. It does have uh, pay-to-win uh, pay type uh, setups with it, more specifically with the characters that you can purchase to build up your roster. It does have a base level of characters that you can use, but for some more of that other stuff, obviously you're going to need to pay some money to get that out there. But yeah, according to SteamDB, it has dropped seriously 99%, and that's just crazy to think about it, you know, about well, how uh, far it has dropped. And what's even crazier is you think about uh, what was it just was it wasn't last week i think it was two weeks ago uh we talked about that other game that um unfortunately just got shut down and it, it's the same concept as as multiverse and smash um it, it's that smash style clone hmm i think that was yeah, actually it's... in a quest marker if i'm not mistaken yeah, it was. We talked about that. I think that was actually even funny enough. I think that was in last week's quest marker. Yeah. Um, one of last week's quest markers. But yeah, so according to yeah, Steam DB right now, it shows that at release it had a peak of 153,433 players. And as of today, it has 1,175 players. And it's it's not even a like it, it's not even a steady drop. Kyle, I don't know if you're looking at the SteamDB um, 
link or anything that's actually in the article from Polygon, but it's not even a it's not even a nice easy drop, you know. Like I mean, it went from the hundred fifty three thousand players on July twenty first, I guess, is when it actually released. Maybe that was a beta period. Um, all the way, to, like you know, and within about two weeks, oh, wow, it went yeah, from, yeah one hundred fifty three to one hundred thirteen. And then another two weeks after that, it went from the 113 to 43,000. And apparently it's been hovering around this, not even hovering. It's been ever since it got to a low of 12,475 in September, it's been on, it hit a steady decline then. So it took not even a f- about a month and a half for it to do a big drop and then a steady decline after. But again, that's specifically just PC games or PC games as it relates to those on steam. But mm-hmm. I mean, what do you, what do you think though, Kyle? I mean, we're, we're in an interesting scenario right now where yes, this was a free to play game or is a free to play game. It hasn't gone away yet, but it's also the idea that it's kind of trying to be a live service game. They're trying to bring in they're they're doing seasons. They're doing battle passes you know, they got character unlocks, they got all these things. And we're learning that live service games just, it's a good try on stuff, but not many of them seem to survive. Yeah, I wouldn't even necessarily say that it's it's trying to be a live service game. I, I think it it desperately wants and is is failing at it. Um, honestly, I, I'm fairly certain, you know, they, they've had season passes since the beginning. Um, I, if I remember right, the roster only started at like eight characters. So it was like very similar to what you would start with on, on like super smash brothers. Um, when you very first start the storyline and not, and that, that might even be less than what you started out with, uh, smash brothers, but it is paid for by character, um, character and skin, if I'm not mistaken, um, so it besides the the battle pass you're you're just pumping money into basically a smash brothers game to get all the things you would eventually earn through regular gameplay uh for a game that's $60 right out the gate yeah yeah you're right about like the content part especially because that's one of the key things that even the article here from Polygon makes mention of is that you know it's like if you want to be a live service game or a free to play game. It's like, you've got to keep that content rolling. And it seems like the last character they added was back in November. So you're talking what? Three months now. Um, November, December, December, January. Yeah. Three months. I had to go count my head there again, but yeah, three months ago that Marvin, the Martian, and then battle pass that had alternate forms for Velma and bugs bunny. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to think that we just can't get some games made, especially that have to be a live service game, like that it's just all money-making stuff anyway. Like, you know, I, we, we don't need everything to be a live service title. I mean, the comments here even on their article make, make even comments about this too. Um, like this person here said, uh, I feel like with fighting games, especially, can't you just make a game, a good game that people will want to play? People still play Smash Brothers Melee, and that game is over 20 years old with no post-launch content of any kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Multiversus is. is Multiversus is a Smash clone because right. Smash Brothers Ultimate kind of went crazy with the number of characters that they were bringing in that were not Nintendo characters. And as they started to kind of bridge the gaps for things and, and bring more characters on, they got to an impressive roster. And of course, like a smash brothers title, it's still being played to this day with a pretty big fan base, but other companies can do this too, without having to be like this. Right. Or are we just now stuck in the cycle of, of, of freemium games? Um, you know, I I I'd like to say we're we're not stuck in a cycle of freemium games. I don't think we're we we're quite stuck in a cycle of freemium games. I I think it's something we'll we'll always see, unfortunately. Um, and I I actually um I was looking through old articles. It was two weeks ago that Rumbleverse um was announced that it's getting shut down. 
but ah, okay. I, it's just another example um, uh, of, you know, one of those freemium games that I think it's going to, we're going to see a lot of them come and go in the wind and even more licensed ones, unfortunately, that, that are going to struggle to, to be something that, you know, the most popular games out there are. Um, I mean, it's a Smash Brothers clone, but it, it does what Fortnite did. You know, it, it bridged gaps that that only children can do with their imaginations at this point, it seems like. Um, and and all of a sudden, it's in a game. And that, that was cool for a little bit, but it wasn't quite as good. So I think if, if games like this need to or want to continue to come out, they need to support themselves with with actually good free content with the the paid for content and not only that the base game actually has to be something worthwhile playing yeah that's that's gonna be the key part is that you want that base game to be something worth playing for a long period of time and at the rate things are going with the fact that they haven't put out any new content for it and they want it to be a freemium game or something that they rely on with a battle pass to make them money they're obviously not doing a good job i mean obviously they made a mistake somewhere down the line when they were working on the roadmap for this like did they expect it to fail that soon or did they just see the writings on the wall with the way player engagement dropped and they're just like well we'll just do this much for now and we'll see what happens in a few more months well and i i I think Maybe that that's where they failed is there. It was a popular game to begin with. I, I remember seeing videos about people that were, you know, buying all sorts of characters and videos about, you know, it costs $300 to get everything in the game. And and people were actually doing it and and paying for the characters and paying for the skins and whatnot and the battle pass. So I. I'm wondering if part of it was they they failed to follow through with their initial idea of supporting it with content of supporting the uh, game. Um, maybe there, I, I personally didn't get a chance to try it out. Maybe I should, but may, maybe they've had issues with, you know, hackers or, or people that are, that are just trolls on the game. I couldn't say for certain. I mean, trolls are going to be everywhere on games, but um, I know on some of those free games, it, it can make it, um, honestly, uh, a little stressful and just strenuous to play just cause you don't want to have to listen to someone else whine or, or do anything, you know, while you're trying to enjoy yourself. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if the actual population in that game probably suffered from some of that, that you had the hardcore, uh, fighters that, you know, or, or fighter, uh, I want to say this, the hardcore gamers that, uh, specifically play fighters who were in there and just tearing everything up and it kind of led to a decline maybe because they weren't moderating enough i mean i know i'm just kind of throwing stuff at the wall and just seeing what sticks here at this point but i mean obviously of course we've got a way out you know and and all we can do is speculate to kind of think about what else could be going on yeah and i mean on on another side note i mean they were trying to take on one of the biggest games essentially out there currently even to this day i mean you go after super smash brothers melee it's one of the most inclusive fighters that that you can play children play it adults play it you go to tournaments and you can you can see someone that that's 10 years old going up against someone that's 40 you know yeah it's it's definitely something and i think smash brothers has just found a way to really cross that barrier generation to generation Mm -hmm. given the fact that the first one came out when we were kids and now we're what is it this was ultimates the technically the fifth smash brothers title i think so but i mean it's a strong series that's the other thing it is yeah and it's it's maintained its status quo as being like that top tier fighting game at least with what it does and there have been others that have attempted to come out but nothing seems to have hit the right way. And maybe I feel like the big thing that the devs should be taking away from all of this is that the freemium idea, the, the pay to uh, pay to win 
or even the just battle pass type scenario, there needs to be some more thought on this and some more ideas kind of gleaned out of this to realize or, or, or some more like looking back to think like, was this the right choice for doing this? Or could we have just worked on it a little bit longer and put out a game that had all of these things fleshed out instead? And maybe not charge the full 60 bucks, charge 40, and then, you know, work out some type of DLC stuff as you go. Maybe follow a model similar to what Nintendo did for releasing new Smash Brothers characters. Um, I know people are going to get mad at us about this, of course, making the comparison, comparison to Smash Brothers, but that's that's the key thing here. That's what it's been trying to do, is mm-hmm. trying to, like, kind of eat away a little bit there. And it did for a minute, but it didn't hold on very long. Right. Yeah. So I guess unless Warner Brothers comes out and says something about exactly what's going on here, I mean, that game's still trucking on. It looks like it's going to be having its third season drop at the end of March. They went ahead and extended out that season. So if you haven't checked it out yet, again, it is free to play. You don't have to go drop any money on it now. But go and, I guess, go check it out on the platform that you'd like to and see what you think. Before it's too late. (laughs) Before it's too late. Yeah, really. No joke. Um, now we're on to the next story here in the news. And that is quite honestly, the the headline I wrote for this makes perfect sense because I uh, seriously, the Tetris movie trailer drops and I didn't know what I was expecting. Um, yeah. So the Tetris movie is actually going to be an Apple TV plus exclusive that drops at the end of March, March 31st. And of course, when they announced that they were making a game based on Tetris or a a game, a movie based on the game Tetris, it it went through my head. Kyle, I can't speak for you on this one because we haven't really talked about it either. But Mm -hmm. um, it went through my head. Of course, it's like, okay, well, we saw what happened with the movie Pixels. We saw what happened with the movie Battleship. We saw what happened with the movie Rampage. It's like the attempts on video game movies in the last five to ten years you know, in the wake of success of some other video game movies, such, of course, as like, you know, like Sonic and the Resident Evil movies, which, you know, we'll loosely say based on the game, given as things have gone with that series. Um, it's like, I didn't know what to expect with this. And maybe I didn't pay enough attention to see what was going to be going on. But the Tetris movie is actually about how Tetris ended up not necessarily coming to be, but how it ended up getting here to the United States. So, obviously, of course, the story with Tetris is that it was made by um, a Russian uh, named Alexei, uh, and I might uh, butcher this last name here, yeah, Alexei uh, Pachinov, and it was made by him, of course, and it was a runaway success for what he was working on, but, of course, obviously, the the success needed to be out there even more, and so um, Taron Edgerton, who played in uh, Kingsman, who was in the uh, Elton John biopic, of course, as Elton John, uh, plays Hank Rogers, who's a Dutch entrepreneur who becomes so enamored with the titular game that he travels to the Soviet Union during the end of the Cold War in order to secure its distribution rights. And that comes from this breakdown here from The Verge. The movie is basically a Cold War... Like, Cold War... uh, it's a Cold War movie. Let's put it like that. It's literally just him going to secure the rights, and the trailer goes on about him having to deal with the Russians, having to um, go and actually meet the developer, to go and meet, like, deal with the Russians themselves to actually get the game out of the country, because, of course, this is pre-collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, it, it was crazy to watch. But did you get a chance to watch this trailer, Kyle? I actually have not had a chance to watch the trailer yet, unfortunately. Okay. Um, I I guess I knew a little bit about the history, more so with the original creator. So, I mean, th- this is something that I'd probably be interested in. in. Oh, uh, same. Of, unfortunately, uh, I don't have Apple TV, and I have no desire to sign up for another service. So I will be waiting until it comes to a different movie service like Voodoo or uh, comes out to DVD, unfortunately. Well, if this has been bankrolled by Apple for, you know, like, you know, for doing exclusive rights and stuff, the next place you're probably going to see it, if anywhere, is probably going to be on Blu-ray. And that'll probably be several more months out. But no, this was very interesting in how this movie was approached, at least in regards to the like the like when you go watch the trailer you'll see what i'm talking about but 
it basically becomes more of like a not even like a spy film, but it feels like it has spy elements to mm. it though. Like for what he's trying to do to actually secure this game. And so like um one of the key parts about it though is that obviously he's trying to get distribution rights for this game because he knows it's going to be a runaway success. And one of the groups he's working with, obviously, as we know from being gamers in that, is Nintendo. And one of the things in the trailer that they actually feature is, uh, and they go on to say it's like only 10 people in the world have seen this, and they pull it from under a cover, and it's a Game Boy. Because the original Game Boy had Tetris packed in. Yeah, and I mean, Tetris was so huge for the original Game Boy. I mean, I I had Tetris yeah, for was. my original Game Boy, so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. And that's why it's like, you know, they're showing it. They're showing it with like a, uh, an IDE cable, you know, going into the, the cartridge slot on the back of the Game Boy. Like, you don't actually see the front of it or anything, but obviously you look at this thing. They don't even, I, and then they're like, what is it? We call it the Game Boy, you know, and then... Obviously, like the the picture you see here um, in the article itself, the screen cap they have is, I believe the, I'd have to look up his name, but he was the president of Nintendo at the time. Okay. And so yeah. that's what's going on. And so we're going to see some of that history, of course, develop in here to the point, you know, of getting obviously Tetris over to the Game Boy. So it's a very... Again, after all the other video game movies we've had in the last several years, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what was going to happen. But here you go, a Cold War spy thriller about a video game. I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's Tetris. It it just, espionage and video games, it, it just sounds like a wacky combination. But... I mean that this was, you know, the what mid eighties that this all happened in, so mid late eighties technically, I guess. So I don't know, it, it, it could be worth the watch and I, I know in the article they do um say we could expect to uh see Tetris span into a trilogy of movies. Maybe, but um I I I would say don't get ahead of yourselves on that one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, I'm just. Let, I'm let's not really let's sure. see the breakout success of of the first movie before we say you know that you want to do, even if it's you know historical fiction on on it or you know a uh, a, a biopic type picture. Um, I, I I would like to see the success of this one and see if they get it and nail it, you know, to, to the accuracy. So that, but that's just me personally, I think. So, yeah. So this is going to be late eighties. So this was, so the game originally shipped with the game boy in 1989 (laughs) and the game boy of course was released. Yeah. At the exact same time, you know, April 21st, 1989 is when the game boy dropped. So that's one of the big things though, of course, to kind of take away from this is that we're going to be looking at, you know, the history of this game come into play, but at the same time, we're going to be, um, you know, we're also going to be looking at maybe some other historical Nintendo stuff that hadn't gotten out either. You know, there's going to be some other things that we might actually see about this that maybe we didn't know about Nintendo because they were able to talk with people and get some more um, research into place, you know, for all of these different bits of video game history. So, I'm genuinely curious. I don't know when my Apple TV Plus trial subscription goes away, but <laughs> if it goes away uh, or if it's set to expire after uh, this movie comes out, then I will make sure to let you know so we can watch this and see what it's going to be like. Heck yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, so yeah, again, right now, the movie is set to release at the end of March, March 31st, on Apple TV Plus exclusively. Wouldn't be shocked to see a release here uh, later on onto physical media, Blu-ray, and even potentially DVD if you still like to get DVDs. Uh, But in the meantime, I guess we get to wait for that. And in the meantime, of course, we're going to take ourselves a quick break here on the Weekly News Roundup, and you get to check out this ad from our sponsor, Anchor.fm. And we're back. All right. So 
moving on to our next bit of news, and this is actually a big one for the week, Kyle. Um, this one is actually, I, I guess, maybe not as shocking as it could be for things here, but this is uh, that the fact that PlayStation VR 2 reviews are out, and it is indeed a mixed bag. So I mm-hmm. went ahead and I started looking at some of these reviews, knowing that the embargo was out, and here's what we've got. So I looked at Ars Technica, The Verge, Forbes, GameSpot, and Tech Radar. So Ars Technica says, you know, I grabbed a couple, I just grabbed key lines here and we'll go into the articles themselves in a minute. But Ars Technica said, six years later, the tech has improved, but so has the competition. The Verge goes on to say, instead, Sony chose to build a new ecosystem from scratch. That puts all the pressure on Sony to deliver a lineup of original games that justify the $549 price tag. Um, I've got Forbes here that says the main issue that comes up with the device is the fact that it's still tethered to the PlayStation 5, meaning you uh, must both own a PS5 in the first place, almost doubling the effective cost and you're still wired into something, which Meta's main headsets are not anymore. GameSpot goes on to say PlayStation's second VR headset is powerful and elegant, but Horizon Call of the Mountain is doing all the heavy lifting when it comes to games. And then Tech Radar says, yes, it's an expensive piece of equipment, but one that sets the bar high for future console-based virtual re- virtual reality headsets and is also more affordable than similarly, power- bleh, similarly powerful PC VR kits. I cannot speak today. I'm sorry. <laughs> but... I know a lot of that is bleak news. Like a lot of the companies here, of course, or, or excuse me, a lot of the review uh, and other media groups and that all like had good things to say about it. You know, that that playing the games was comfortable. The the actual foveated rendering worked exactly as they expected it to. The controllers are comfortable and easy to use. The The fact that you could just plug in with the one cable and you were soaring into a game was just like no problem whatsoever. And that a lot of them actually considered using this as their screen to play PlayStation 5 games on, you know, as a standalone set instead of using their TV to actually play the games on. You know, that kind of does say something, depending on, of course, what you might get additional out of the headset. But it is definitely something that they do talk about. However, a lot of them, you know, really do get into the idea that it's expensive, Kyle, we've talked about that a lot, haven't mm-hmm. we? You know, five hundred and fifty like bucks than the for the system. Yeah, five hundred and fifty dollars for the headset right out of the box, and it does come with Horizon Call of the Mountain uh, right in there with it. So that means you at least get a game to go with. Um, you get the yeah the headset, the controllers, you get charging stuff, um, but you know. Even with all of these natural improvements for things as technologies become more and more easy to adapt in for VR, especially the key thing is that the VR space has grown and Sony's taken a while to get up to this point now. But the idea, though, of selling a headset that has games that are recycled from other VR headsets and might have more down the line. But again, it's recycled games from other VR headsets or where you can play them on other VR headsets. And you still need to pay that amount of money in tandem of, for buying a PSVR right off the bat or, or a, a PlayStation 5, excuse me. That's a lot of like hoping that things are going to work out. I mean, well, you're talking 500 for the console and 550 for the headset. You're over a grand already. Uh, I thought it was uh six for the, yeah. Uh, the the bundles five fifty uh five ninety nine. Oh, never mind. A little bit yeah. more than what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. So six hundred. Uh, but uh, I mean, aside from that, you you think about the fact that yeah, there is that pre existing library, and the the fact that there are a lot of users that can actually play, um, their PS four games on. That that you know on the PS5 just by downloading the title or or popping in the title uh, into the new console and granted you know you have to play it as a PS4 game but you still have access to play that game. However, none of the PS4 VR titles are compatible with the PS5 VR headset. There's no upgrade for any of them as far as I uh, as as far as my knowledge. Um, and then, uh, so e- even just like Beat Saber, 
um, literally the same game uh, as you know you've you've had for the past what six years now. Uh, you've played it potentially on PC, potentially on on Quest or um, on PS4. You're gonna have to buy it again if you want if if you want to play it on PSVR two. Yeah, and that's one of the things that like this article from Ars Technica makes mention of here is that um, there are some game companies here. Uh, that are actually going to be potentially offering like discounted prices on things. They go to say here, a few individual publishers are offering free or reduced priced upgrades for older PSVR titles, but the vast majority of any existing library will just not work on the new hardware. So it's going to be a pick and choose thing. I know that Beat Saber is being remade for the PSVR too, but if you own Beat Saber for PSVR, are you going to be able to do any sort of potential dual entitlement like that? Like, hey, you pay maybe a small fee, five bucks, and you unlock the dual entitlement for both VR and VR2, or are you going to be stuck having to pay the, what is it, I think 20 bucks, 20, 25 dollars for Beat Saber for the VR2? I mean, it's that's kind of a big stretch, especially for the fact, though, again, that there are so many other VR options out there that don't break the bank. But even beyond that, I mean, just the fact that, you know, that some uh, developers or or publishers are, are beginning to offer, you know, an upgrade path uh, for the VR titles, uh, regardless, are, are any of the DLCs like for, say, Beat Saber, if you bought some uh, song packs, are those going to transfer over, even if they do have an upgrade path for you? Um, there, there's a lot of variables in there and, um, you know, I, I know that there aren't a lot of games currently, but that, that's something that any system kind of falls victim to, unfortunately at launch. I mean, you look, you look at even, uh, say the switch, one, one of its major titles that it launched with was one, two switch. And that had a game about milking cows. Yeah, it was it was more like a like a WarioWare clone, just to kind of. Very but it was much more, so. but it was built specifically to showcase the feature set of the Switch, anyway. Right, but I mean, it was it was a technically a, a full price title for them. That's um, true too. That's true. And w- when when it launched, I mean, that was like what one of eight or ten games that were available. I I'm I'm just saying, you know, the, it, it it's an example that you know all consoles kind of fall victim of you know a, a small library at their initial launch that's something that can't be helped especially if it's it's something that's new um so it, it's hard to attack the console for that um i'm glad to see that all the the features are working effectively and and to how they were expected at least um mm-hmm. i know we were personally excited about um the room mapping and how it looked uh, through the headset um that was something we talked in length about when they originally showed uh images off yeah there there's a lot that i'm seeing of course that like i'm appreciative of here there were a couple spots there talking about like uh what is it forbes kind of has a like an all-in-one kind of review where they put some things together. Like they say here from Axios, uh, older VR tech could induce nausea or just uncomfortably warm the user's face. But even my two-hour sessions with PSVR 2 were pleasant. That's probably thanks to a combination of its lower latency and tracking movement and refreshing its graphics plus advances in VR game design. So, you know, it's definitely been a, a modern improvement especially because the technology has also not only have, have things grown, like I was saying earlier, but the fact that now it's all limited down to a single cable instead of the mess that was the basically the HDMI jump box, the HDMI splitter that you needed to use oh, yeah. with PSVR. You know, I know you know that for a fact, and I've seen it firsthand too. It's the idea, though, that, yeah, it's um, it has made marked improvements, but even like GameSpot makes, a, like, makes the comment here... Uh, they go to say uh, there's nothing that truly distinguishes it from the competition. Yes, the headset is cutting edge, and the Sense controllers with their finger-tracking capabilities are both capable and comfortable, even if they're utilized in predictable ways. Outside of very limited cases, mainly Half-Life Alex, 
VR games feel like they're still trapped in the same small box of possibilities that came in when the Rift hit the market all those years ago. There's nothing wrong with these ideas, just as there's nothing wrong with taking existing games like Gran Turismo or Resident Evil and using VR to open up new ways to play them. But the question then becomes, is that enough for you? And is that enough if it's all that will ever be? And then they go on, of course, though, too, to say, with a price tag of $550 and the cost of the PS uh, or the PS5 that it's attached to, that's an important question to ask yourself, especially at launch when the PSVR 2 feels more like a luxury item than a must-have gaming platform. For some, spending that much money to have the latest technology is all the justification they need. But for those who are interested in entering the world of virtual reality in earnest, PSVR 2 is a tough recommendation at the moment. I mean, it's pretty clear there that unless you have the money to spend on this or you're not one who needs to be in that kind of elitist category to have the latest and greatest every single time, there's nothing that seems to be wanting or needing to drag players in to go and buy a VR2 right now. I mean, that's what I took away from it. I mean, aside from uh, Call of the Mountain... um what what is there coming out for VR that that's really just awesome? I mean, they they are supposed to get uh, Village, I want to say, but I I mean that that's also a game that that's been out already. Um, I don't know. I just I feel like they need their next big Beat Saber for for VR to to be I don't know to to blow up again essentially. Um, or for us to take that that next step. Not only that, you're you're absolutely right. With that cost, it, it's a hard buy for a lot of customers. A lot of people just went through and and bought a brand new PlayStation Five over the holiday when they actually had them out on the market, out on you know the shelves on Walmart and Target and whatnot, or the availability at GameStop or Amazon. So I. It's really hard to, you know, just for the headset, the four uh, five forty nine, or for the bundle, just so you can even get a game to play with it, um, six hundred bucks um, after spending five on the console already, um, or five fifty if you got it with God of War. Man, that that's a, a hard sell for a lot of people. You know, eleven hundred bucks just to play two games. Yeah, that's. There are several other titles out there, at least right now. Like, I'm trying to actually get a good count on the number of them. I think it's somewhere between 15 and 30. And then it launched with about, oh, uh, I think it launched with about five or six titles today. More Mm -hmm. specifically, whether it unlocked VR capabilities in a title you already have, like GTA, or not GTA, GT7. (laughs) I know, I always do that. Uh, Gran Turismo 7. I should just stick with saying the full name. Now, um, that, or if, that is one I've seen or the, if it's a the port. VR for the, the Gran Turismo, and holy cow, that's mm-hmm. that's like driving a race car. Oh, yeah. Oh, hands down. I 100% agree with you. Um, But yeah, it's like their titles, not every title has a release date right now. A couple of them have release dates for like the end of March. For example, the No Man's Sky VR version will be dropping, or at least the one that enables VR support in the game. Um, We've got Resident Evil 4 that will be moving over from exclusivity on the Quest to actually being over on um, PSVR 2 here sometime Mm -hmm. soon. It's, yeah, it's... The game list is not very expansive. Again, most of the stuff that's available right now are things that already exist on other VR platforms. And that's not to say it's a bad thing because obviously you want to make your games available across as many platforms as you can. I mean, you know, that's the only way you're going to be able to penetrate into the market and and make it so that way, like, you know, people can play where they want, how they want. But at $600, $550, $600 for the headset, I, mm, I don't know. I still well, don't feel it. And especially when you look at how fast the uh, original PlayStation VR dropped in price, it really makes you wonder if, it, if it's going to be worth picking up within the first six months uh to a year uh if you if especially if you're that user that already had the playstation or if you got one for christmas is it really worth that pickup um when six months down the line a year down the line it could be you know a a third less you know 
yeah, I mean, it's possible we could see by the holiday season that they end up having a more affordable bundle for the VR2. You right. know, they could very well drop the price that fast. Um, well, and a, a lot of places were saying yeah. that it did not have the uh, pre-order numbers and the release uh, sales that they initially expected. So I, I think that could potentially affect uh, the, the total sales cost of the, the unit uh, long term. Or maybe even if they decide to continue production of it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I got two more things to mention here on the PSVR 2. And one's a decent thing and one kind of gives me hope. So here's the decent part. And this is in the review from The Verge, uh, who's kind of going on about privacy. Because we know how meta is with privacy and the concerns uh, there with how Facebook has been over the years. So they wanted to see exactly kind of what was going on. So they talked with a rep from PlayStation, Mary Tiang, and they go on to say, SIE doesn't record, collect, or store photos or videos of PSVR2 users or their homes, nor what their user is seeing in their homes through the headsets, inside-out cameras, or eye-tracking cameras. PlayStation VR2's play area scanning feature does store a set of data points representing the play area locally on the user's PS5 system to maintain an accurate tracking experience. This set of data points is overwritten when a user resets the play area. So if anybody's concerned about the privacy part, especially as you're mapping your home or at least your play area and what you see through your cameras, both inside and out, uh, it looks like Sony completely avoids pulling any of that data in. So consider that a good sign all around, at least in regards to privacy. Uh, but farther along in the article, though, from uh, Tom Warren, one of the uh, one of the other um, uh, one of the other members of The Verge, he goes on to actually talking about his concern that the PSVR 2 doesn't officially support PCs, that Sony decided not to drop a, a driver or anything to support it. But what he found, though, is uh, this is actually what he says here. He says, I tried connecting the PSVR 2 to a PC directly into a USB-C port on an AMD Radeon RX 6800 XT, and there are early signs that modders might be able to get this working. Windows picked it up as a second screen and limited the resolution to 1080p, but Steam, uh, Steam VR just kept asking me to plug in my VR headset as it couldn't recognize the PSVR 2. So there's something in the drivers there, at least, where it's being picked up as a display, but it's not going all the way, of course, to be able to actually output anything to it yet to show anything, because there's no like open... VR software that you can just plug in any VR headset and get some sort of display from it. You know, you usually need some other software to help do that. Right. Now, now that you're saying that, that does give me a lot of hope for it. Um, and maybe it would be actually worth the uh, $600 price tag or, you know, even $549. I mean, if you're, if you're a PC user long-term, if it has the accessibility to be used on a PC or in, I guess, in another method other than just with the PS5, I would be a lot more apt to buy it simply because I I don't want to spend the $1,100 right out the gate just to play a VR game. No, I... That's just a lot right now. Like, the I fact mean, that, that... That's been my big hang-up with not getting a uh, index, honestly. Is it, it's hard to spend a thousand dollars on on a VR headset that I don't know what I'm going to play on it or when I'm going to have the opportunity for that matter. Yeah, and I'm right there with you. Like we have the Quest Two, like the original branded Oculus Quest Two, before they rebranded it to the Meta Quest Two, right. and it's the same for us. Is that playing the games on there that you can install on the headset itself and go with? You know, that's cool and all. It works just fine that way. But for the titles that I would like to play plugging in and using like the uh the VR headset, you know, it, it it's just extra heavy lifting and of course it's the concern with cords. It's just a bigger problem. So mm. yeah. I just I don't know what else to really say about it other than yeah, it's just it's been kind of a pain for us. But that headset of course is I cost us what? I think $300, you know, not the $550 or even the the $800 that an index would cost. Right. So I I mean it, it it's hard it, it it's really difficult to say that i i would pick one up i mean if even if i had a ps5 
I, I personally don't think I would necessarily pick one up right away, but the the fact that you did say that it seems to have some sort of recognition with the PC, that gives me hope as well that there could be a future for PSVR on, on PC and maybe a little bit more variety and competition as, as far as the market goes um, for quality headsets that are available for PC use. Maybe. I mean, the... Don't get me wrong. I feel that the feature set inside the PSVR 2 is nothing short of incredible. And I'm grateful for the things that have been put in there because that's going to make playing games that much better of an experience, (laughs) especially in regards to longevity because of the foveated rendering where you can Mm -hmm. render at the the highest quality you, you can where a user is actually focused at and drop down that resolution where they're not in their peripheral view. So that kind of opens it up for that longevity's sake. But that the the fact that it's isolated to a single platform, to a single ecosystem, means that you're not only, I guess, necessarily alienating alienating your player base because now they have to spend five hundred and fifty bucks potentially, six hundred dollars for this headset, and play through games they may already have, but also can't play games that they may already have because of support for PSVR not being on there and then not being able to use it anywhere else. It's kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, those features. Uh, I wish we, we would see more headsets that had already incorporated a, at least one or two of these features uh, earlier on, but... Um, the fact that that Sony has so many of these really cool features that they addressed in one one iteration, in fact, their second iteration of a of a headset really bring gives gives me hope that one day we could hopefully see some sort of connectivity, regardless if it's hackers bringing it to us or um, I I hope long term it would actually be Sony with official yeah. drivers. I would hope so, but I wouldn't be surprised to actually see a um, to see probably modders and hackers out there first figuring out how to actually get it to communicate and work because there's enough people out there who are smart enough to tear this thing apart, figure out how it works, and get it to work on a on something different. I guarantee it. Yeah. So, but in the meantime, that is it for the main stories for the Weekly News Roundup. We now move on to the last bit of the Weekly News Roundup, and that happens to be the Quest Markers with Kyle. Kyle, what do we have in the Quest Markers this week? So, in our first Quest Marker for this week, uh, Sega will be joining Nintendo in increasing salaries on its staff instead of laying off people. Uh, Starting on July 1st, 2023, Sega has uh, stated that it will increase existing staff uh, salaries up to 30%. Um, Of course, Sega will achieve this by increasing the base salaries uh, as well as increasing the ratio of base salaries and incorporating bonuses into um, all staff salaries. Um, Across the board, however, uh, it should be basically a uh, 15% increase on average for all employees that work for Sega. So congrats on on Sega and, you know, more power to them for for standing up for their employees and and going forward with this. So that's awesome. Yes, way to go, Sega. And in our next quest marker, uh, Power Wash Sim is getting a Final Fantasy VII Midgar DLC? That's right. Uh, Coming in March, the popular dad game will be adding five new levels um, that take place in Final Fantasy VII's Midgar. Uh, Players will be able to actually wash uh, Cloud's motorcycle, the interior of Tifa's Seventh Heaven bar, um, the Scorpion Sentinel, and the Airbuster boss, to name, I I think, most of them. Uh, But... Uh, it seems that jobs will be coming from both Avalanche and from Shinra. Um, so you can expect to, to start spraying away, uh, of course, like I said, uh, March, what was it, 1st? 
Yeah. Yeah. Sometime in March. I, I, I know I had the date somewhere. Dang it. Uh, oh, March 2nd. Excuse me. <laughs> I just wonder if you're going to be power washing anything and you're just going to hear Sephiroth. Right? All of a sudden you hear the, seven, <laughs> the, the one wing and angel come on and you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> now I'm going to go pressure wash the, uh, the Genova chamber. <laughs> That's the secret level. <laughs> And in our last quest marker for the evening, Horizon Forbidden West comes to PS Extra and, pre- and PS Premium this month. Um, one year after the launch of the popular title, it will make its debut on PlayStation Plus and our PlayStation Plus for the extra tier and members above. Um, this announcement actually comes alongside the announcement of Resident Evil 7: The Quarry Outsider. Or Outriders, excuse me, and Borderlands 3, just to name a few, uh, joining the PlayStation Plus service. So after their the revamp of uh, saying that they will be taking away those uh, PS4 titles, um, at I believe it was end of March, um, these titles will be um, joining the fray, so to speak. But that is it for the quest markers. For this week. Well, awesome, awesome. So because that is it for the quest markers, that means it is it for the weekly news roundup for February 17th, 2023. I want to thank everybody for listening in to this week's weekly news roundup. Of course, if you liked listening to this, be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice. We are on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. If you're not sure exactly which one to listen to, why don't you go ahead and check us out on our homepage at anchor.fm slash the-npcs-podcast and take a look out there for what podcast platforms we are on. Again, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to this week's News Roundup. We will catch you all next week. Laters.